Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan. I'm Richard Roper. Pride in the name of love. We're going to talk about some of the best LGBTQ plus movies and also how Hollywood has had shifting codes and morals and ethics in treating the subject matter through the decades. Plus, what not to watch and the Thursday three. But first, Screen Time with Roan Roper is being brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing to drive your overall business success. Because they believe today's online world is your opportunity, visit AmericanEagle.com today to get started. Bro, I thought in celebration of Pride Month, we'd talk about some of the best LGBTQ plus movies and also uh, the ways in which Hollywood has sometimes addressed the subject and addressed uh, gender identity and sometimes avoided it and different times when uh, Washington got involved. And before we talk about some of the best films, I would like to say, first of all, I know we have a long way to go, but we are at a time right now in 2021 where there are more shows, streaming series and movies, but especially I think in television, with gay characters, and definitely more openly gay writers, producers, actors than a generation ago. And it's wonderful to see that. Where it, you know, And the gay character doesn't always fit in certain stereotypes that we saw even as recently as 20 years ago. But what Hollywood wanted to present on the screen was very different from the lives that people were living behind the screen. Absolutely. There's a great documentary called The Celluloid Closet. It came out, I want to say, in around 1996, narrated by Lily Tomlin. But it is this... Very thorough and comprehensive and sometimes very funny and witty look at the history of depiction of gay characters going all the way back to Thomas Edison made a short in 1895 about, you know, two gay characters and all the innuendo and stuff you would see in early films. And then there was a period for a long period of time where, where the gay character was the object of derision, the sissy character, they actually would call it. I'm talking about in the era of sound films in the 20s and 30s. Right. And then you had other films where there was all kinds of obvious, you know, references. And it was very, very clear that certain characters were attracted to members of the same sex, but it had to be implied. And then there was the Hayes Code. Now, all of a sudden, you had the government getting involved. Right. In the 1920s, the roaring 1920s, there really were no rules. And there's a lot of pre-code films that have now come back into favor. There's like nudity and oh. all this rampant sexuality and yeah. language. And oh my goodness. And your and, great-great-grandfather was something else. And I want to just <laughs> make this point. I've been thinking about this for a long time. Hmm. A lot of how we see ourselves as America. As, as we saw ourselves go through the Great Depression mm -hmm. and then into World War II and come out of that mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a place in which America thought it could do absolutely no wrong. It's based primarily on our entertainment of the time. We did not have movies that really dealt in any great way with whether it was LGBTQ plus issues or it was Jim Crow South right. or any of those kinds of things, we very much made the art to fit how we saw ourselves. It was sort of an American propaganda lifestyle thing. Yeah. And that's why even, and listen, I, I get it too. I mean, you know, the, the movies that came out during World War II were all about the American heroes and I completely get that. But of course there was the great film, The Best Years of Our Lives, which dealt with the issues that soldiers had when coming home. And that is the reason why that film still resonates. Uh, but in terms of the gay community, 
there were these strict rules about you couldn't show this, you couldn't show that. And what I mentioned, uh, the celluloid closet, they have these fantastic examples, Ro. As somebody makes the point in the documentary, you know, the kind of the board of governors or whoever is overseeing this stuff, they weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. So they didn't pick up on a lot of things. So, for example, in the movie The Maltese Falcon, one of my all-time favorite movies, the great Peter Lorre plays Joel Cairo, right? And he's this kind of character who's very, you know, uh, duplicitous and suspicious. And the before he ever enters on screen, Humphrey Bogart is Sam Spade. His secretary comes in and there's someone here to see you. Hands Humphrey Bogart Joel Cairo's business card, and Humphrey Bogart actually sniffs it and says lavender. It's a lavender scent because he has he smells of lavender, and then he comes into the room, kind of fondling his walking stick, which he actually at one point puts the top of it like near his mouth, mm-hmm. and some clear gestures there. Yeah. And then there was uh, there was a scene in uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Rosalind Russell does a musical number in a gym filled with bodybuilders who are wearing just tight shorts. And uh, Paul Rudnick, the great writer, says, here's Rosalind Russell in a gym full of bodybuilders who are couldn't be less interested in her. <laughs> they ignore her in the entire musical number. You know, so there are all these kinds of things like that where, you know, Ben-Hur, geez. You know, there's all kinds of stuff going on with Chuck Heston and his former rival, or his, his rival who was at one point his mate, so yeah. to speak, in high school yeah. and the way they look into each other's eyes. So there was ways that Hollywood would say, listen, there's some stuff going on here. You guys get it. Well, Sherlock Holmes, you know, for years and years and years and years, uh, you know, it was that Basil Rathbone version of Sherlock sure, Holmes. Sure. And and he was just he was just very smart, but a confirmed gentleman and bachelor. Mm. Mm. Uh, th- then the actual Sir Arthur Conan Doyle version of, yeah. of Sherlock Holmes I think was intended to be um, uh, not the film version from the 1930s and 1940s. And writers in the 1970s and moving forward started to pick up on it. And there Mm -hmm. were different versions of Sherlock Holmes that definitely went down that particular narrative. And I think you see that in the modern Sherlock Holmes movies too, Mm. because you see this tension really between Watson and Holmes and jealousy that emerges between them. Interesting stuff, and you know, people talk a lot about the Doris Day Rock Hudson films, and there are a couple of instances. Rock Hudson, as we all know now, uh, was gay, but that certainly was not known until near the end of his life. You know, when he tragically died of AIDS, but he at least twice in the movies played straight men masquerading as gay men in a way to kind of pick up Doris Day, and you know, it, so you see the scenes. Yeah, uh, I mean, the good news is. We've come a long way. Like I said, you know, I'm sure, you know, there's a long way to go. But, you know, in recent years, obviously, Moonlight, which won for Best Picture, you know, with its uh, depiction of a character at three different stages in his life who's wrestling with his sexuality and his sexual identity, you know, and and is one of the greatest films of all time. But white people have been gay on screen for decades now. Yes, Right. I mean, yeah. you get it, it became almost an entire genre, romantic yeah. comedy genre in the 1990s. Right. Of having a gay character who was part of, you know, some young single female's yeah. life trying to figure out what True. she was going to go do. True. Right. And some so of those. Hold up, yeah. And some of those hold up better than others. Yeah, you know, you have a lot sure. of straight males uh, playing characters, you know, whether it's in the birdcage or in and out. There was a movie called Making Love. But you're right. I mean, if you go all the way back to 1970 and that was the boys in the band which was an adaptation of an off-broadway play and it was directed by the great william 
Friedkin, who you know went on to do The Exorcist and The Conversation. But that was pretty much the first big mainstream Hollywood movie. It was about a group of gay men getting together in an apartment in Manhattan during that time. Now, it was interesting because they did the remake uh, last year, and the entire cast was openly gay actors. Jim Parsons, Zachary Quinto, Andrew Rennells. And it was set still during that period. So now it works as a period yeah. piece because it's about a time where even in cosmopolitan swing in New York in the late 60s, early 70s, the only time these characters felt they could be themselves was with each other in one of their apartments, not out there in the world where a lot of them were still you know, pretending and posing as heterosexual men. I want to go back to Moonlight, though, because mm. that's why Moonlight is such a revolutionary film. Because it takes on two subjects simultaneously, yeah. and it has the uh, incredible uh, artistic and financial backing mm-hmm. to make a great film out of this issue of this kid growing up in a crime-ridden part of mm-hmm. Miami, not being able to figure out who he was or how he was going to live, like kids in every major city in this country who grew up in crime-ridden neighborhoods have to deal with there's that heartbreaking scene where he has to fill the bathtub at the Mm -hmm. very beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. And so you see this child as just a child of poverty and of potential parental neglect. And you don't get to see what that next piece is of him trying to figure out what his own identity is. And that's two things, those two prongs to... You know, some of the great social ills of the last, well, you know, God knows how long in, you know, in American history or human history. But, but you know, the, they're dealing with two very controversial subjects in a lot of really honest ways. And times we can't really talk about things as honestly as we would like to. There's this whole movement to talk about it honestly. But then if you don't talk about it honestly in a way that is pleasing to the people who want to be critical of you, then there's an attempt to, you know, silence or to stop or whatever, you know, goes on there. I don't want to get too political about it, but it's stupid that we can't have an Mm. honest conversation about honest conversations. Well, no, you're absolutely right. And to this day, and this is not something that, you know, any actor will discuss publicly but there are some agents of some actors who will tell them to think long and hard about playing a gay character especially if they're known for being macho leading men or in some cases if if in fact they have not disclosed their own sexual identity on the other hand you know we've had so many great actors who have taken on roles and there's a whole other discussion about straight males playing gay men and and things like that i think you know acting is acting but you know you go back it's believe it or not 16 years since brokeback mountain and jake gyllenhaal and heath ledger in brilliant performances you know heath ledger a few years later posthumously wins oscar for playing joker in uh the dark knight and i I completely agree with that i think his best performance though is in brokeback mountain it's amazing and that film was winning all the awards row and it didn't win Best Picture, and it lost to Crash. It's a film that Crash is a film that a lot of people hate. I don't. I think it, you know, oh, it had a lot of brilliant. a lot of great things to say. That's also but, a movie that takes on all kinds of, of crazy important subjects. Yeah, and there's there's a certain revisionist history I think about that. That's a that we can do a whole show on that. But but the feeling was that even as recently as 2005, and you and I have talked a lot about how the Academy has diversified and expanded their membership. But in 2005, it was still probably 70% white, close to 70% male, and the average age was about 70. And the feeling was when it came down to the vote for best picture, there were still a lot of old timers that were not going to vote for Brokeback Mountain. 
and voted for Crash. Now, whether that's true or not, or they had other reasons, but it's considered one of the bigger one of the bigger upsets in Oscar history. But I want to talk quickly too, Ro, about a film that I just loved from a couple of years ago. That was not a film that was ever going to win an Academy Award or get awards consideration, but. I love this film because we talked in our most recent podcast just uh, last Tuesday about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the film that came out in 2018 called Love, Simon. And the way I always describe it is it's a John Hughes teen high school romance except for the lead character is gay. And it's all about him coming to terms with that, deciding when he's going to come out and the support group he has. And then um, his parents, Josh Jamal and Jennifer Garner, they're like my favorite parents, I think, of any teen movie in the last 10 years because they're the exact parents you want to have every gay teenager to have. They're, they're clueless, which, you know what, a lot of parents are. They know their son is going through some stuff, and dad's a little macho and kind of sometimes makes, you know, sexist or maybe even borderline homophobic jokes and is always telling his son about supermodels that are hot, trying to bond with him. So he feels completely, you know, like taken aback. But in both cases, dad and mom, I get choked up almost thinking about it. they're so accepting. And they just they just like like his mother's like, I'm just happy that you could finally talk to us and it wasn't something else. That you weren't going through, like maybe you know, depression yeah. or su- suicidal thoughts, and the, and I just I just love how that movie was handled. Love Simon, if you haven't seen it, it's terrific, and it's just it's not a movie that would have gotten made twenty years ago. I don't think. No, you know, Hollywood is not known for its bravery, but when it is brave, it is great. Yeah, we got what not to watch and the Thursday three coming your way next. But first, let me tell you about Portillo's. It's one of my favorite places to eat on the planet earth and that is absolutely true i'm not making that up i i, I probably order from or eat drive through a portillo's drive through and eat from portillo's i probably once a week probably i would say and you know why because they got the best hot dogs they got the best italian beef they got the best italian sausage and <laughs> they got great salads they got great french fries they got great everything that you want if it's comfort food or uh, what are they called? Fast casual now. Whatever that is, mm. you you have got to stop by a Portillo's if you haven't done it yet. And if you live outside of the area in which there are Portillo's, you can order the stuff online. And I always tell you, order the chocolate cake because it's the best chocolate cake you're ever going to have in your life. You can think, well, now how is a fast casual restaurant in Chicago going to make the best chocolate cake I ever had in my life? Trust me, it is. There are people all over the planet Earth that actually order that cake for their weddings and they build wedding cakes out of the individual chocolate cakes. I'm not making that up. (laughs) Try it. Portillo's.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S. That's how you spell it. Portillo's.com. What should we not be watching? Well, we have a few, unfortunately. You know, there's some weeks where we only have like one, but I actually have a, a trio uh-oh. of what not to watch. We're talking about physical on Apple TV+. Plus. Rose Byrne, who's a terrific actress. This is a comedy drama, Rose, set during the aerobics craze of the early 1980s. Um, and Rose Byrne plays this San Diego housewife and mother who's deeply unhappy. And she's got this internal monologue going through all episodes throughout the entire run of this series where she's just berating herself. She has a bulimia problem. She has a body image problem. She hates her neighbors. She hates her stupid husband. And she's just always railing against herself. And then she stumbles into the mall one day and sees an aerobics class and 
finds that that's something that she really loves and eventually decides she's going to make a videotape. Almost like there was an actress named Jane Fonda who mm. did all that, but they never mentioned her in the series. But I like the idea of something set during that aerobics craze and the Reagan go-go 80s and all this you know, talk about you know looking great and mourning in America. But it's such a downbeat bummer of a series with a thoroughly unlikable character played by such a likable actress. I don't know why anybody would want to stay with her. So it's called Physical on Apple TV+. Plus. Take a pass on that. All right. And Harvey Keitel, who I absolutely yeah. love, and he has just kind of come back to the screen after a little bit of an absence, yep. is yeah. in Lansky. Yeah, Meyer Lansky, who has been a character in so many movies and uh, TV series, and sometimes he's Meyer Lansky or he's Hyman Roth, right, in right. The Godfather. That's right. clearly Meyer Lansky, the, the famed... Jewish, they called him Mob's accountant because he had a way with numbers and he got involved in all the casinos and everything. A fascinating character, died in the early 80s. Harvey Keitel, actually in Bugsy, uh, Ben Kingsley played Meyer Lansky and Harvey Keitel played Mickey Cohen. And Warren Beatty played Ben Siegel. So we've seen, by the way, the best Meyer Lansky movie of all time. You could argue that, you know, Godfather 2 as Hyman Roth is kind of the, you know, a shadow character. But no, 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 no. In real life, Bugsy is super, super great film to begin with. With all the characters, including the Ben Siegel character and Virginia Hill played by Annette Benning. Uh, here's the problem with Lansky. And so Harvey Keitel plays him in his later years, obviously, uh, where he was kind of in retirement. And Sam Worthington plays this journalist who comes to interview him, which is sort of like, the, the you know, such an intellectually lazy, overdone thing where the yeah. journalist sits down and says, yeah. I want to get to know the real Meyer Lansky. And then Meyer Lansky says, well, we got to go back to the beginning. Get your tape recorder out, son. <laughs> you know, and, and, then, and then we have all these flashback sequences. Yeah. But we know this story. We've seen it in, in better movies. It's not a bad film, but it just feels kind of unnecessary. I also want to mention the movie that's going to be by far the biggest box office film probably this week and for weeks to come, which is F9, which sounds like you're saying something terrible to someone, but it's the ninth movie in the Fast and Furious franchise. Okay. Okay. Which, I gotta gotta tell you this, Ro, I love this. So, you know, the Fast and Furious franchise with Vin Diesel and the rest of the cast, Michelle Rodriguez, and then there were spinoff characters, The Rock showed up, and Jason Statham, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You know, it's become more and more ludicrous. I mean, they took down a submarine at one point. The Rock (laughs) actually caught a torpedo and kind of redirected it. If you go back and watch the first one, the first Fast and Furious, 2001, which is actually kind of a gritty street film inspired by real-life street drag racers, right? And uh, the late Paul Walker plays Brian, who's a cop in Los Angeles, right? And he goes undercover, and uh, Vin Diesel's character of Dom, you know, they become best friends, but at that point, he's kind of investigating him. But here's the part I love about this. The undercover investigation has to do with a ring of hijackers who have robbed trucks carrying DVD players, and portable TVs with VHS attachments. That's That was the big crime where somebody kept hijacking trucks filled with Panasonic electronic goods worth right. street value hundreds of dollars at least. <laughs> that was the big case. And now we've gotten to the point where, you know, Charlize Theron is an international terrorist and Helen Mirren's in these things, all these big actors. And in, the, in F9, and listen, if you want to see a really big, dumb stupid movie even the characters in the movie now are starting to say like like the Tyrese Gibson says do you think we're invincible do you think about all the stuff we've done so it's got the self-awareness but it's way too long but there's a moment and I'm not giving anything away that hasn't been reported on there's a moment where two of the characters 
played by Ludacris and Tyrese, they have to uh, intercept a satellite like thousands and thousands of miles above the Earth. So they take a Pontiac Fiero and they attach some rocket boosters to it mm -hmm. and they launch it into space. Fast and Furious is now in space. Okay. So I'm going to say don't watch that. There are rumors because these are both universal franchises. There are there are strong rumors that oh, there's no. going to be a Fast and Furious Jurassic Park oh, crossover. Oh god. And I will say this to you. If they do that, it will still be more realistic than F9. <laughs> okay? They have sullied too many great <sighs> things. I I start to worry about Universal. I really do Dude. because they don't have the same I don't know plan in place that you see like Disney having. You know, Disney looks at things in like a 50-year yeah, trajectory, right? Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, I, I I think like somebody dropped two scripts and they landed on top of each other. And they said, oh, Fast and Furious Jurassic Park. And they're like, no, those are two separate scripts. Oh, I thought it was a new project. So, oh, well. sorry about okay. that, folks. All right, so let's talk about things that are good on the Thursday 3. What should yeah, we be watching? Some really great stuff, Ro. Um, last year we talked about I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which was the brilliant HBO series based on the book of the same name about the Golden State Killer. And uh, the journalist Michelle McNamara, the late journalist who actually died of an accidental overdose while she was working on the book. She was married to Patton Oswalt, the, the great stand-up comic and mm -hmm. actor. And they, you know, the, he helped get that book uh, published. And it's one of the best true crime books of the last century. And then it became this brilliant series all about kind of these citizen detectives. Well, now there's a special episode because they caught the guy after, unfortunately, Michelle McMurray never got to see this happen. But they, you know, they found the guy through DNA testing, and his trial was last summer. And right. the victims who we saw in the in the original series got to do their victim impact statements. So the special catches up on that, but it also goes back to Michelle McNamara's childhood as a young teenage girl in Oak Park, Illinois, an idyllic suburb. We've talked about it before because Hemingway, when we talked about the Hemingway right. doc, Frank Lloyd Wright. And has always had this national image as this this wonderful place. And when she was a teenage girl, a young woman was raped and murdered in an alley about two or three blocks from Michelle McNamara's house where she was growing up. And Michelle went to the scene of the crime. And that's talked and it talks about how that is how she got hooked on murder, as she mm. says it herself. So it, it's kind of got twin storylines. One is the you know the real time present day sentencing of this monster, and then there's this return to Michelle's early teenage years when she first became interested they talked to the victim's brother they talked to the guy who was a young boy found the body that case is still unsolved by the way in, in oak park they never found who did that so it's i'll be going to the dark if you watch the original series on hbo this is what they're calling kind of a special episode i think it's a really fitting epilogue especially oh. for the victims and for michelle mcnamara all right who are you, Charlie Brown? Completely different, right? <laughs> and it's great to have something like this. Is Apple? Well, I had to take a pause. Yes, exactly. Um, but you know, this is one of the wonderful things that, and we like to talk about documentaries so many times because it's just like going into when they used to have libraries. I guess they still do, but now we're going on Amazon. <laughs> I don't know because what are you do in a library. I don't know. You 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 look stuff up on the internet. You know, I don't know. You know, books. I love books. Come on. But uh, you know, the fact that documentaries can cover such a wide variety of topics and. This is about the Peanuts creator, Charles M. Schultz. And the conceit here is that Charlie Brown, the character, the cartoon character, has to write an essay, Who Are You, Charlie Brown? And then that kind of then gets into a history of, of the man himself who kind of based Charlie Brown on his own uh, adventures as a child. 
But it's just kind of neat because Charlie Brown is still a hugely popular Peanuts. You know, the characters ha- have endured now for, what, 70 years. And it's it's just great to see how each of them were created and how it became such a, not just a national but international phenomenon. It's only, it's like less than an hour. but it's it, And it's a tribute to who, by all accounts, Charles M. Schultz was just a lovely, lovely man. So that's called Who Are You, Charlie Brown. Apple TV and Plus. No one wants to believe that, right? Because you can't believe that somebody in reality, who, right? Yeah, yeah. Who is not? Yeah. So talented and so successful could be a nice guy, but it, but in fact he was. And then Luca. Yeah, that's the latest Pixar film. Uh, you can get that right now on Disney Plus, actually. Uh, and Pixar, they do it every time, right? It's either going to be a good film or a great film. I would put this in the second tier, but still, that's going to probably going to be an Oscar-nominated animated film. What I like about this, row is it's set in coastal Italy in about 1950. So it's got all these beautiful palettes of colors that, you know, showing like the village. But the two lead characters are sea monsters. They're, they're sea monsters, uh, but, when, and they're, but they're actually just playful. They're like 14-year-old sea monsters. And you have that great underwater world where everybody talks English and, they, you know, they have yeah. families mm-hmm. and schools, literally schools of fishes. <laughs> but when they set foot on Earth, they're transformed into boys. They become boys. They they lose the scales of the tail, and they but but if someone gets them wet, it's like splash. You know they'll turn Uh-oh. back into sea monsters. You know, and they've done this a few other times in the Pixar universe. They'll take characters that were normally repulsed by or scared of Ratatouille, for mm-hmm. example, and turn them into the heroes. And certainly they did that with Monsters Inc. Right. Where you know, and the same thing with the sea monsters. The sea monsters. Everybody in town. There's paintings and statues of people harpooning sea monsters. You know, everybody in town's deathly afraid of them, but. They're just lovable little dudes who are afraid of those big, giant people in boats who are fishing for them all the time. And it's just a nice coming-of-age story. Luca on Disney+. Plus. All right. The Rowan Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios, it says here. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service, global, digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Tim Alanius and Renee Nelson are our executive producers. Brian Altimer is our musical director. See you next time.